baseball fans and welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. There is no off season and I'm your host Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this outside in a beautiful day in Pasadena, California overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. Well, the Rose Parade is going to happen in just a few days. Again, getting all prepped up for the big football game that's going up here. Your pal Sully will be at the Rose Parade. That should be pretty cool. And this is when a lot of people's eyes are looking at Pasadena, California. So why not stand outside on a gorgeous day, just a few clouds. You may hear some birds chirping. You know, this is one of those days. Look, I get, I, I like cold weather. I do. And part of me would love to live in the Pacific Northwest and put on a nice cable knit sweater and go outside and feel all hearty. Maybe have a hearty soup, drink some, some hearty brew, and uh, live a hearty life. But as I'm standing out here without a jacket on in California, uh, I see the, the advantages of living life like this. By the way, when I say hearty brew, uh, I, I made it sound like beer. Uh, for those of you who know your pal Sully, and I know I do, you, you know that I, I don't drink. I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink coffee. So I guess I'm talking about tea. I had a bad allergy attack a few days ago, and I drank a lot of tea. And it seems like every Christmas time, when I'm spending time in my in-law's house, they, they fix a nice brew of tea. And I sit down and I drink. And every year I say, you know what? This is the year I'm going to start drinking tea. I'm going to be a tea drinker from now on. That's it. That's going to be part of my identity. Hell, I could do Sully tea daily. That's how much of the tea I'm going to get. It's going it's to be part of my daily routine. It's even in the word there. And then every year I, like, I have like three cups of tea and say I'm just drinking water that's We've dipped leaves into, and now it's mildly flavored. Why don't I just have the water? And by February, I'll forget all about wanting to drink tea. And then come December, lather, rinse, repeat. For the last 13 years, I've been doing that. This will be the 14th straight year. I'll say, do you want, I, this, I'm going to start drinking tea this year. And it's not going to happen. But I, I had a nice cup of tea. So when I say a hearty brew, when I'm up there in the woods of Oregon... Or Washington, or maybe Idaho. Living the way a man's supposed to live. That hearty brew I'm talking about is probably uh, herbal green tea because that's what a man drinks. Hey, um, I'm going to talk today about a player that unless you are a member of his extended family or a crazed baseball historian, chances are the name Jimmy Ring does not ring the proverbial bell. And yet, he is one of these players in baseball history who is, well, to put it bluntly, he lived a fascinating baseball life. Just the other day, I was talking about uh, Francisco Liriano and, and uh, Edinson Volquez and Edwin Jackson as living those lives where you had the, you know, you're not a superstar, but you checked all the things off the box. Well, Jimmy Ring is another one of those players. And, but Jimmy Ring, who played in the 1910s and the 1920s, has one of those strange baseball lives because he was never a superstar. 
he had a couple of very good years. He was never a, you know, a, a huge uh, marquee name. And yet, he kept intersecting with players and moments in time that you realize he lived a, a wonderfully colorful and memorable baseball life. Now, I don't know the answer to a potential trivia question of who has been traded for the most Hall of Famers. But Jimmy Ring was involved in one trade involving a Hall of Famer, then a few years later involved in a trade where one future Hall of Famer was traded for another future Hall of Famer. He was involved in one of the most famous World Series of all time, avoided but was suspicious in some major scandals, and essentially lived a great baseball life. And every once in a while, as I do a bunch of these, and I've gone back to the daily format for this last week of the year, remember this is one thing that I would do from time to time on the daily podcast, and that is salute someone who may have slipped through the proverbial cracks. Now, I must give credit where credit is due. A lot of the information that I know about Jimmy Ring was written by Charles Faber as a member of the Society of American Baseball Research, Saber. So I can't sit here and say all the stuff I'm going to say is a part of my own rich and intense research. In fact, I'm going to put a link to the article by Charles Faber onto not only sullybaseball.com, but also onto mlbreports.com. Why not? Now, Jimmy Ring was born in 1895 in Brooklyn. And he, you know, his classic immigrant story, you know, father was a longshoreman and everything like that. And like a lot of the people who went into baseball, he didn't have a lot of formal education, but he did get involved with lots of the local sort of semi-pro and pro teams until he finally worked his way up to an actual professional team in, I believe it was Utica. And, uh, no, it was, uh, he was in, you know, he was with Utica. He was with the Lowell Grays of the New England League, the Jersey City Skeeters of the International League, the Louisville Colonels of the International League, and then finally in 1916, his contract was picked up by the Cincinnati Reds, and he became a major leaguer. Now, he was, you know, he was a, he brought, he was brought up in 1917 with the Reds, and he pitched 24 games, started seven of them, uh, you know, to a 4.40 ERA. Not great, not terrible, saved a couple of games, but the 23-year-old ring made the 1918 team with the Reds. So this is one of the times when he intersected with, first of all, his first Hall of Famer and his first sort of taste of scandal in his career. Now, not really at any fault of his own. The manager of the Cincinnati Reds then was Christy Mathewson. Something I bet you forgot if you know who Christy Mathewson is, but he actually finished his career. He uh, started his career in the minor leagues of the Reds and finished it pitching a handful of games with the major league Reds and managed the team. And he was the manager of them in 1918. Now, there was one of his teammates was Hal Chase. Jimmy Ring 
played with Hal Chase, who was a very popular player and a very controversial player. And one of the reasons why he was controversial was that people suspected for a long time that he fixed games. Now, we'll get to the 1919 World Series in a minute, but this is one of the aspects of baseball that is actually kind of hard to imagine now. And that people would be wondering if it was on the up and up. You know, say what you want about cheaters today. Say what you want about PED users and people who use greenies and all that other stuff. They were trying to win. They were trying to win the game. You know, Barry Bonds didn't get bulked up to lose. But when you know there were guys out there who maybe weren't making as much money as they thought they deserved and could pick up a couple hundred bucks here, a couple hundred bucks there, if they drop the game or two, there's 154, it's not going to make the difference in the world if you drop a game or two. And I really have a hard time imagining watching baseball and wondering if it's on the up and up. Are these players trying to win? And I'm not talking about let's put in an infielder to pitch the final innings to not blow out the bullpen. We're waving the white flag in this game because that's different. That's saying, hey, let's not burn a pitcher. Let's not burn someone's arm and we don't need to. That's sort of taking one step back to take two forward. I'm talking about going out there and saying, our goal today is to lose so I could pocket some dough. But that was part of the game. And it was part of the game that people were suspecting it for a long time. And that there were players, you know, we, Hal Chase was certainly one who was suspected of doing that. Uh, there are some very suspicious things that have happened throughout the course of baseball, whether it was the 1914 Philadelphia A's, the way that they suddenly collapsed to the Boston Braves, the way that Smokey Joe Wood hit the first batter in a potential clinching game of the World Series and then got shelled and walked off the mound. There are things that make you go, oh, wait a minute. Did the Cubs take money in 1918 to drop that World Series to the Red Sox? That you can look at stuff and not be sure if it's on the up and up. Well, Hal Chase approached Jimmy Ring and said, hey, uh, there's something in it for you if you lose tomorrow. And Hal Chase and Jimmy Ring said, I'm going to go out and try to win. And he lost. And Jimmy Ring got some money from Hal Chase. Not a ton of money, but a little bit of money as a gift. Essentially implying that the gift was Hal was going to make some money if the Reds lost that game. And they did lose that game. And Jimmy Ring was the pitcher of record. Now, I, since from what I've read and from everything inferred here, he just happened to lose a game that Hal Chase had some money on for the Reds to lose. And it was Christy Mathewson who stepped in and suspended Chase. And Chase and Mathewson basically went into loggerheads on that. But, you know, basically saying, you know, there, into a, there was a lawsuit involved there. But this was part of what the culture of baseball was in the 1910s. Betting was part of it. And when you read something like that, I said, yeah, yeah, it's possible. It's possible that a player could look around and say, like, it's worth my while to make a couple hundred bucks throwing this game. Not saying Jimmy Ring threw the game, but games were thrown. 
Now, one of the other games that happened to be thrown also involved the Cincinnati Reds and Jimmy Ring, but on the other side. In 1919, the White Sox and the Reds met in the World Series. Depending on who you talk to, either the White Sox were heavily favored or it was pretty evenly matched. If you saw the movie Eight Men Out or read the book of the same name, you would be under the assumption that it was a David versus Goliath story. Uh, any look at the actual team show that the Reds had a pretty darn good t- set as well. But as it turned out, Jimmy Ring was a starting pitcher on the 1919 Reds. He wound up winning 10 games, started 18 of them. He saved three as well. He had a decent year, not a great one, but one that earned him a spot on the World Series roster. Now, the Reds won the pennant, faced the White Sox, and with the uh, Reds leading two games to one, it was Ring who got the start in game, uh, in game four. And the Reds won that game with Eddie Sicotti who was one of the White Sox pitchers on the take, pitched very badly. And Ring got the win. Now, we found out later that the White Sox were on the take. We found out later that the Reds were playing a White Sox team where seven of their top players and one bench player who wasn't even going to get into the game, were taking money to not win. Now, if you're Buck Weaver, you could say, I was in on the meetings, but I didn't take any money, and I played hard. If you're Joe Jackson, you said, hey, he got all these hits, he hit the home run. You know, how are you saying he was on the take? But the fact of the matter is, they did. And that 1919 World Series was won by the Reds. And Jimmy Ring was the winning pitcher in one of the key games. And so, like as I brought up about Edson Volquez, Edwin Jackson, and Francisco Liriano the other day, Jimmy Ring got his ring. He got his world championship. And the Reds won. And the history will show that the Reds won and the White Sox lost. But there is that ripple effect of, yeah, Jimmy won that game. But was it on the up and up? It's really, really hard for me to look at baseball and wondering what that's like, except the fact for another figure in Cincinnati Reds history, and that is Pete Rose. This is why Pete Rose' suspension was for the way it was, why it's a lifetime suspension, why it's so important. Because you could watch a baseball game. Now, you might say that a manager is putting together a stupid lineup. You might say that some people are making dumb decisions, but it's really, really hard to say that a team, when they get on the field, are not trying to win that game. That a manager isn't trying to win that game. That those players aren't going to try their best. They may not do their best, and they may do some dumb stuff. But you could watch that game knowing those players are trying to win. And then when you look back... At 87 and 88, especially, 87 particularly, and know that Pete Rose was betting on games while being the manager of the team, and the Reds 
were a much better team than San Francisco that year and were probably better than the Astros in 86 and probably better than the Dodgers in 88, at least on par with them. And when you had a manager who was making bets on the Reds, but he was betting on for them to win. Shut up. What? That's not the point. That's not the point. Unless you're betting on all 162 games, which he wasn't, that means the games he didn't have money on were being treated differently than the games he was betting on. That means if you're going, huh, I got a game tomorrow that I have money on, should I save my pitchers? Should I save my hitters for this game? It affects the game before and afterwards negatively. And man, it, it always sort of revolves around the Cincinnati Reds, doesn't it? During the 1919 World Series, the managerial life of Pete Rose and Hal Chase. But as it turns out, the records will show that Jimmy Ring won a World Series title with the 1919 Cincinnati Reds. And the Reds, according to history books, are the champs of that year. And they would win another title in 1940, two more in 75 and 76, and their most recent one in 1990. You hear that leaf blower? I'm wondering how much more that leaf blower guy is going to be blowing the leaves around. He's been hitting the same, I don't know, patch of four feet for the last 25 minutes. Anyway. uh, After that year, Jimmy Ring uh, had probably his best season, 17-game winner, pitched 42 games. He started 33 of them, picked up a pair of saves, threw a shutout as well. Solid, solid year with the 20 Cincinnati Reds. And then he was traded, along with Greasy Neal. I love, I love the names of the players of that era. For Epa Rixley. Do you know who Epa Rixley is? Epa Rixley is a pitcher in the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's right. Jimmy Ring was the key in a trade to bring Hall of Famer Epa Rixley from the Philadelphia Phillies to the Cincinnati Reds. Good news for Epa. Bad news for Jimmy Ring, because what that meant was he went from a big-time contender World Series-caliber team to one of the worst teams in baseball. And like Steve Carlton many years later, it was Jimmy Ring who had some of his best years with a truly terrible team. He won 18 games with the Philadelphia Phillies in 1923, a terrible team. And year in and year out, was one of the Phillies' top pitchers, even though the team absolutely stunk. He would lose 19, 18, 16 games a year, but put up solid numbers. And if you were a Phillies fan then, well, you probably were leaning too much of the win-loss record and not look at the fact that the guy was pitching well. The team stunk. And he was stuck in a team that, you know, was in the basement. And I really, really hope... That world championship he won in 1919 helped solve a couple of those wounds. But he was rescued. And in 1925, the Phillies traded him to the New York Giants. He got to play for Christy Mathewson's uh, mentor and the great John McGraw. And he was traded for Jack Bentley and Waylon Dean. Now, according to the Sabre article, the main reason that John McGraw wanted Jimmy Ring was because Jimmy Ring had a very good record against the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Pirates had won the World Series in 1925. 
just squeaking past the New York Giants for the pennant. And John McGraw was one of those people who like, you know what? I need every little advantage I can get. Jimmy Ring beats the Pirates. I want Jimmy Ring on my staff. And he did okay. I mean, he had a mediocre season in for the New York Giants at age 31. And it was really, well, he was at the beginning of the end of his career. Spent one year with the New York Giants and then got involved in one of the great cases of sell high, buy low in the history of baseball. One of the most controversial trades in the history of the game that turned out to be one of the best trades in the history of the game. The St. Louis Cardinals won the World Series in 1926. Their superstar was Rogers Hornsby, who was the most popular player in all of St. Louis. He was also the player manager, putting together one of the great Hall of Fame careers of a hitter that anyone had ever seen. Branch Rickey, who was probably the greatest general manager in the history of baseball, saw, hey, we have Rogers Hornsby at the peak of his powers, coming off a world championship, coming off of everything great. Let's trade him. Let's trade him away. Of course, people in St. Louis were incensed. They just won the World Series. He's their superstar. He's their biggest player. People were burning images of of, and, and effigies of Branch Rickey. And to be sure, Rogers Hornsby wound up having a wonderful year with the New York Giants in 1927. In the trade, the St. Louis Cardinals got back Frankie Frisch. Frankie Frisch was a young player on the New York Giants. Not a superstar, but a good solid player. And whose job it was, at least on the field, was to replace Rogers Hornsby. Good luck with that, right? Actually, yeah. Good luck with that. Frankie Frisch then blossomed into a superstar. He had a Hall of Fame career and became the leader of the Gas House Gang as the St. Louis Cardinals dominated the National League throughout the early 1930s and laid down the foundation for a Cardinal team that won pennants in 1928, in 1930, in 1931, picking up some World Series titles against the uh, the Philadelphia A's and later the Detroit Tigers. The Cardinals became a National League dynasty and the spark plug, the king of that team, the leader of the Gas House Gang, was Frankie Frisch. So while at the time, training Rogers Hornsby looked like an act of absolute madness, it turned out to be a brilliant stroke of luck or foresight that the Cardinals said, let's trade our top player at the peak of his value and create something new. Now, Rogers Hornsby wound up continuing to put up great batting numbers, but he had a strange ending of his career. He played one year with the Giants. He played one year with the Braves. He got bounced to the, the Cubs. He played a little bit with the Browns, a little bit back with the Cardinals again. But by the time he was winding his career down... Frankie Frisch was becoming a superstar in the National League. It was one of the gutsiest and most daring trades in the history of baseball that amazingly worked out. 
and Jimmy Ring was involved. The trade was Rogers Hornsby from the Cardinals to the Giants in exchange for Frankie Frisch and Jimmy Ring. Now, Jimmy Ring was not there to be part of the Gas House gang. He actually had a bad season in 1927, posting an ERA of 6.55, losing all of his decisions, and only making three starts. The next year, he was traded back to the Phillies, but this is not one of his, hey, he's the best pitcher on a bad team. Sure, he lost 17 games, but his ERA was above six, and he was done. He floundered around in the minor leagues for a while, but could never make it back. And continue, you know, even long after his playing career was over, he was calling himself a professional ball player because, well, that's what happens. And he died at the age of 70 in Breezy Point, Queens, and he's currently buried at St. John Cemetery in Middle Village. So, Jimmy Ring, an obscure name who kept intersecting with baseball's fates intersected with a hall of fame, with a pair of hall of fame managers was traded for one hall of famer traded with a hall of famer for another hall of famer avoided scandal in one point and prospered because of scandal possibly in another point that's a rich baseball life 12 years at the major leagues 118 victories some solid seasons with some crap teams A World Series ring on the finger of ring. Why am I bringing someone like this up? Because he lived a rich baseball life. Like the three pitchers I talked about the other day. And his memory will soon fade out. The record of what he did will become obscure. And looking up who Major Major League Hall of Famers traded for each other... You'll find the Frankie Frisch for Rogers Hornsby trade, and Jimmy Ring will be an obscure footnote to it. And we mainly celebrate, like in all of history, the superstars. We celebrate the generals, we celebrate the kings and queens, we celebrate the emperors and the writers of the greatest books. You know, the writers of the greatest plays. We remember Shakespeare, we don't remember... Bill Dunphy, who also wrote uh, plays at the same time. Who? I don't know. I just made up a name. It's probably Dunphy from the Modern Families where I got that name from. But there are people whose names will fade out, whose deeds will be forgotten. And Jimmy Ring hasn't pitched a ball since 1928, nearly 90 years ago was he last played in the major leagues. And I guess what I want to do as best I can is give his memory and legacy a little bump. He lived a great baseball life, a strange one too, intersecting with very, very interesting subplots along the way. And that's worth celebrating on a beautiful, sunny December day in California. So Jimmy Ring, you're welcome. And thanks for being part of the tapestry of baseball. There are a lot more Jimmy Rings out there than there are Rogers Hornsby and Frankie Frisch's. And that's what makes that mosaic of the game that I'm just absolutely in love with so rich. So, go to SullyBaseball.com. Like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. 
waxing poetic about a pitcher you've probably never heard of before. This has been the Sully Baseball Podcast for the 29th day of December, 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.